Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Crime Family. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the Carissa Boudreaux case. And this actually is a case that happened in our home province of Nova Scotia. So shout out to Nova Scotia. Um, but it happened back in the winter of 2008. And it involves the disappearance and murder of 12-year-old Carissa Boudreaux. And so we're going to be taking you through that, the investigation, as well as a undercover operation that was kind of controversial that led to the truth. So with all that being said, let's get started. As I said in the intro, this case takes place in Nova Scotia, in Bridgewater, which is about 90 minutes southwest of Halifax. Um, do you, either of you know a little bit about this case, or do you remember maybe when it was, you know, in the news? I remember hearing it in the news, and it was like the first time, it was like a close-to-home case. And yeah, I remember being just a weird feeling that it, like murder can happen here. Yeah, that's that's true, though. I, I actually feel like the first case that I was aware of that happened in Nova Scotia, because it happened in 08, so I would have been like 15, 14, 15. So before then, like, you don't really hear about stuff like that happening in Nova Scotia, but obviously it does, especially Bridgewater, which is a very, quite a small town. It's not like it's Halifax or something. Yeah, like, I remember I was in my first year of college when I heard, first heard, sorry, no, it was my second year of college, sorry. When I first, when I heard about the case and it just, yeah, it was just really shocking to hear something so close to home. And since then I've, I've like read or watched documentaries, documentaries on it and read articles about it. So I'm pretty familiar with it, but I'm sure there's stuff from the case that I never did watch or read about. So I'm interested to hear it. Yeah, I feel like. For us, it's probably pretty well known, or at least, you know, when you say the name, everyone kind of knows who you're talking about. But maybe outside of Nova Scotia, uh, people aren't as familiar with it. Um, and I know I had a friend in university who actually went to the same school um, in junior high as Carissa. So we actually had some discussions about that. So anyway, so like I said, this case does take place in January of 2008. Around 8.30 p.m. on January 27th, Penny Boudreaux reported to the police that her 12-year-old daughter Carissa was missing. Penny says that uh, she and Carissa were driving around in her car and they were having a little bit of an argument uh, prior. And then Penny says that she went into Sobeys. And for those of you who don't know, Sobeys is like a, a grocery store chain if you're outside of Canada. But Penny says she went into Sobeys, bought a few items, and then when she came out, Carissa was gone. And this is when she reported her missing. And everyone was initially concerned because 
you know, it was the middle of winter and Carissa was not dressed very warmly for the winter weather. Um, she had sandals on, she had just a hoodie. So, and there was a lot of snow in the forecast and it was supposed to be getting really, really cold the next couple of days. So that was initially what everyone's concern was, is that she was missing and, you know, if she's gone overnight or into the next day, it's going to be, you know, not good. Like I said, Penny says that she was having a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with Carissa in the car prior, and they were talking about just typical teenager things. Uh, she said it was nothing of note, just, you know, your run-of-the-mill angsty teenager who was having a fight with her her mother. Um, so the surveillance video of the Sobies on that day actually does show Penny uh, going into Sobies, and like she said, she went in while Carissa waited in the car. And on January 29th is when they had their first press conference. And in the press conference, Penny is pleading to Carissa or to anyone who knows anything to please uh, for her to come home or for someone to come forward with info um, about where Carissa is. And during this press conference, Penny totally breaks down, as you would expect. So the same day that they have that first press conference, the police do receive a phone call from some citizens who say that they had spotted some something that looked like footwear um, along the side of William Hebb Road, which is like a secluded road just outside of Bridgewater. It's part of the highway. They saw like some footwear in the embankment. So they call the police and the police do come to the scene and they, they seize the, the footwear. It ends up being a pink crock. So they seize it and they bring it in for DNA testing and the DNA test results do prove that it is belonging to Carissa Boudreaux. So this is a huge break in the case. They know that somewhere she had lost her footwear somewhere along this road here, but there's only one croc, not the other. They also have a second press conference on February 1st because she still has not returned home. And the entire community is worried because Bridgewater is a town of about 8,000 people. So it's pretty small and um, it's kind of one of those communities where a lot of people know each other. And so they were having like candlelight vigils and stuff and it was, they're kind of rallying together to try to support Penny and her family and try to get any information they can to bring Carissa home. And on February 9th, which was, you know, just about two weeks after she went missing, some passers-by, um, it was a little boy and his mother, and the little boy says that he saw some toes sticking out of the snow. Um, so the, he called his mother over to, to check out uh, what he saw, and the mother in, immediately called the police. And the police come to the scene, and they discover a body, which is eventually identified to be 12-year-old Carissa. A couple of days later, police release the identity of the body, and they're keep keeping everything very close to the vest. They're not really saying the detailed information about what evidence they have, but interviews after the fact do say that police um, at this time suspected that Carissa knew her killer and that it was not just a random killing. Uh, ligature marks were found around her neck to suggest that the manner of death was strangulation. And again, that was something that was kept quiet as well from the general public so a lot of the information um, that are going to be talking about like about the discovery of the body and the evidence that they have so a lot of this was not information that they were releasing at the time because they were keeping a lot of things as hold back evidence which is just uh, means that they were keeping everything very quiet and they were trying to keep information that only the killer would know so that case if somebody did say something that wasn't general knowledge it might lead them to be more suspicious um, it's kind of easier to find someone who might be involved in it if they know something that's not just generally out there. So a lot of this information that I'm going to be explaining is stuff that came out after the fact. The police surmise that the body was placed there shortly after her death um, and the, the body was found um, 
or she was placed there when the, before rigor mortis was set in. Um, and there was no evidence to suggest that she had struggled to climb up the embankment from the river or anything. So this was indicating that the body had been dumped there because um, she was found in kind of like a little, like an embankment off this secluded part of the highway. Uh, and there was like a river uh, below it. So um, they thought maybe she had fallen into the river and then she had tried to climb up or something, but there was no evidence um, that really backed that up. So they said that the body had just probably had been dumped over the embankment. So that was on February 9th. And on February 11th, the neighbors who live next door to Penny Boudreaux, uh, Carissa's mother, who was living with her boyfriend Vernon McCumber at the time, the neighbors said that they heard a verbal altercation between the couple. Um, and this was just a couple days after Carissa's body was found and they were arguing and things were being thrown around the apartment and they did hear Vernon say things like, how could you do this? And the neighbors did initially report this to the police. Now just a little bit of... Um, history about like the family dynamic. So Chris's parents had separated uh, prior to all of this. So Penny was dating Vernon McCumber, which was her new-ish boyfriend. And in some journal entries that they had found that, that were done by Carissa before her death, um, she wrote things like, I'm sad because, and she has a list. Number one, I have to go to school tomorrow. Number two, I miss Shane and Tracy. Number three, I have to go to bed at 9.30 instead of 11. Number four, I live in an apartment. Number five, there's no room for my stuff. Number six, I feel crowded. Number seven, end of story. My life sucks until we live in a house by Carissa. And then in another one, they found one that said, I'm mad because number one, mom is engaged to Vernon. Number two, mom made me move here. Number three, mom broke up with Shane. Number four, I want a bigger room. Number five, I don't like Vernon living with us. And number six, the end of my life is ruined. This is by Carissa. And according to Vernon, um, in interviews after all of this had happened, he said that Penny and Carissa had been fighting for a long time. It was a common occurrence. They would get into, you know, physical altercations and just screaming matches all the time. You know, it was, Carissa was a 12-year-old girl and probably typical of many teenagers, but um, he just noticed that they were fighting a lot and a lot. And Krista was just unhappy with her current living situation. Clearly by that, she didn't like how small their apartment was and she missed, she wanted to go live with her dad. Um, she didn't want to be there with Penny and Vernon. So she did not like Vernon for whatever reason. I don't really know any of the details regarding that, but clearly by the stuff that she's writing, she's not, she does not like him at all. So going back to the investigation, and like I said, there were neighbors in their apartment complex who said that they heard the verbal altercation between Penny and Vernon. And this was very alarming to them. And it was a couple of days later on February 14th, Penny and Vernon were asked to come to police headquarters. And later that day, after they were interviewed, they were later arrested and charged in Carissa's murder. Again, the police were being very tight-lipped about specific evidence that they had, um, that led them to arrest them and charge them, but they were both charged at this time. Um, on February 25th, a local resident calls police and says that he had found a pink sandal. He found it in a garbage can outside of a local swimming pool. Um, so the police go, of course, to f and they do find this sandal, which ended up being a crock. Uh, they find a pink crock, a black hoodie, and a black vest in the garbage can. And the resident says that he had checked them on previously in the garbage there and it was not there he was just looking for like extra bottles and stuff he was collecting um the bottles so he would frequently go to this swimming pool to collect the cans and stuff from this garbage can so he was there a lot so the police do go they find 
all of these clothing items in the garbage and the pink croc that they found was the same size and the same color as the one that was left behind at the um, location that the body was found again like i said there was the pink croc that was left behind at the side of beside the highway next to the embankment where chris's body was found so this suggested to them that they were both connected and these items that were in the garbage can were dumped there after the killing Again, this was part of hold, the holdback evidence from the police, and none of this information was public at the time that this was happening. So I actually found um, the agreed statement of facts that was read at the court proceedings later on in the case, but the agreed statement of facts does say that the couple was, they had moved to Halifax in April of 2008, so obviously they were released. So they, like I said, they were arrested and charged, but at some point before April 1st, they were released from police custody. I'm not really sure why, I couldn't get the specifics of that, but they moved from Bridgewater to Halifax on April 1st of 2008. But during the couple's jail time, while they were arrested, there were some undercover police officers that started to conduct a covert investigation. And this involved them posing as members of a crime syndicate and started they started befriending Vernon in his prison cell. And this covert operation was called Operation Mr. Big. That was like their codename for it. And <clears throat> after they're, you know, getting a rapport with him going and they're befriending him, he eventually does say to them that he had no part in Carissa's death, but thought that Penny did. And he said that he was staying in a relationship with her in order to keep her close and to ensure that she didn't try to implicate him in the murder as well. So he was afraid that if he were to break things off with her, she might, you know, out of revenge or out of spite, she might try to say that he was involved in a murder as well. The things that he was saying led the police to really believe that Penny was the one who had murdered Carissa. So on May 3rd of 2008, the undercover police officers convinced Vernon that they had this whole story concocted and they said that for the work that they were doing, they needed a female uh, to work for them uh, for this, this specific job. And they asked him to approach Penny um, about doing this work for them. And this was all in an attempt for them to get uh, vital information from Penny about what she knew about Chris's murder or disappearance, if she knew anything. So this is kind of what led them to Penny. Did you guys have any thoughts so far about this series of events? The first thing that stands out to me as kind of a red flag is how Carissa was writing that she didn't like her mom's new boyfriend or her mom's new fiancé. Because, I mean, if there's, there's obviously an issue going on where he isn't treating her right or he just doesn't care about her so for me like as a mom that would kind of be one of my first priorities would be like well if my kid doesn't get along or doesn't like this guy then there's a problem there so I feel like that's definitely shows kind of her mom's character right off the bat yeah I was gonna I was just gonna say the exact same thing that that's what stuck out to me the most you are there to care for your child and only your child and if somebody if somebody in someone else in your life is not getting along with your child then you need to make it your priority to either make sure they do get along or just care for your child because that's the most important thing in your life. Yeah, like it's kind of always making it seem like Carissa was second, her second thought. Like she was more concerned about keeping her relationship going with Vernon and didn't really care what Chris's feelings about him were and obviously we don't know like any details about why she didn't like Vernon but for whatever reason she didn't and she didn't get along with him and so that could have should have been something that Penny sort of <laughs> sought to you know make a situation better by breaking up with Vernon or trying to I guess patch things up with them I don't know but she doesn't seem like she really made any attempt to really do that do you guys have any other thoughts 
So this like Mr. Big tactic, it's I actually heard about it before in other cases, and it's like super interesting. Like it's where the cops go undercover and pretend that they're part of this crime ring, and they have to try to win over the suspect by saying they can offer them protection as long as they are honest with them about everything they've done. If they've ever committed a crime, they have to tell them all the details, and they you know they pretend like they know stuff about the case and that the cops are coming after them, and they have to tell them everything. Anyway, it's like this kind of like entrapment and I don't think it's even legal anymore in Canada. So it's like super interesting that it actually has led to quite a few convictions in Canada, um, but it's not legal anymore. But it's just it's really interesting. Yeah. When I was actually researching this case, I was like looking up like Mr. Big Sting operations or whatever in Canada. It's literally like what I put into Google. But there was actually a lot in Canadian history that used the same exact like the same pretty much the same story or like the same setup and yeah like you said it is entrapment right which is i'm pretty sure that's illegal in most jurisdictions but obviously it's not but it is controversial because a lot of people think you know it's tricking people and it's not um ethically it's probably not you know on the up and up which is would be accurate but i guess if they're right in their suspicions and they're trying to go after these people they believe committed horrible crimes i guess it is worth it or yeah but it, sometimes it makes it almost think like, well, the cops are on to you and they have all this evidence against you, whether it's true or not. And you're going to get convicted unless you tell me, you know, tell me the truth, exactly what happened. And there's like a pretty famous case. It's like there's a Netflix thing about it. And they're saying, um, you know, you have to tell me in detail what happened. So and I feel like these people are offering them protection. So can kind of maybe some people would make things up just to fit into this group and be involved and if they think their cops are going to come after them even if they're innocent then you know maybe they would concoct a story that would just you know offer them protection it's so that's why it's so controversial and illegal now in canada but i feel like if someone is totally innocent of something and they're saying we'll offer you protection it's like well they don't have anything to be protected from like if they're totally innocent so it seems like would they make up some fake story of something that i don't know I mean, but I did he, I did do a lot of, like when I was reading stuff, it did say it could lead to false confessions and stuff. So that has happened before. But Yeah, because I think sometimes they say they have all this evidence and they're, they can say stuff that's not true. Like they have this evidence against you, which looks pretty bad. So, you know, if you don't tell me what happened, basically confess to me, then I can't protect you and the cops will get you for this. So, yeah. They did um, an episode of Crime Beat was about this case and they did say that a lot of like they interviewed Carissa's father and he was saying that he was very suspicious from the get-go of Penny and also Vernon at the time. He said that just her demeanor and her behavior was not sitting right with him and he didn't really go into a lot of detail about exactly what it was but um, if you watch the press conferences which are on this uh, you know the episode of Crime Beat and it's like on YouTube but when she's doing the press conference, obviously she's very emotional. She's breaking down. She can hardly get through any of her statements. Um, it seemed like it looked like it was on the up and up, but then people kind of dissect the video later and they say like, she's kind of shifty. She's not making eye contact with anyone. And they just said that her body language was kind of showing that she was not being upfront, which I don't know. To me, it seemed like just as an outsider with no experience in like body language like reading body language but i don't know it seemed like legit if i just saw that on the tv i would believe it yeah i was just gonna i was just gonna mention that like when i was watching a documentary on the show like first thing i noticed when i when it showed her in the press conference that she just didn't she didn't seem like a mother that was grieving like yeah she was crying but i i thought it was just a facade like to me it didn't seem real like from 
from the get-go, like when I was watching it. I, th- I thought she was just faking it the whole time, and I was very suspicious from her uh, from the beginning when I was when I was watching the uh, when I was watching the uh, documentary. Even though but I, think, I, but I think like, but I think a lot of that is in, sort of in hindsight. Yeah, it could be too. Yeah, people are always going to dissect people's behavior, though. I feel like no matter what you do, and I'm gonna I say this all the time, and I will continue to say it. It's like if you're acting super upset it's like oh my god it's too dramatic it's fake if you don't have any emotion it's like well you don't care at all and there's no like middle ground it's like it's no matter what people do you know you're damned if you do you're damned if you don't so hearing people like tear these things apart like that i just feel like they're just not legit or there's not enough to stand on in most well cases. i want to know if like all these body language experts like have they ever gone through like losing a loved one or something or like having there's someone in their family be murdered or something because it's like how do you say how you would behave in that situation i feel like no one is really expecting or knows how they'll behave it's just kind of you're just behaving how your emotions feel. i don't know i just feel like there's nothing about the crash conference when i watched it that's made it seem shady like just seemed like a mother who was very distraught over her missing child but i don't know yeah, when I, was, um, when I was researching for another case, and there was like an expert on this, and they asked him, you know, how would you expect somebody to act in the situation? And they say, well, there's like a big, there's a spectrum. So it's like a huge spectrum. So it's like, but most people are outside that spectrum. So it's like, well, I don't know. It just doesn't, there's, there's no clear, like, yes, no answer. It's all up to interpretation. We don't know how people are going to react to certain things. Like, I don't know how I'm going to react if some. Something traumatic happened in my life. Like I don't know what my demeanor. Yeah, it's not something be. that you really prepare for. You no. just kind of when it happens, and then you and just, I, you know, you're not really thinking about oh, I shouldn't say this or I shouldn't say this. Like you're just kind of saying what you. To be honest, like, I'm not an expert. I have no idea how people will feel if they lo- lose a loved one. Like I don't know. You always see people saying like, oh, I don't know. To me, she she seemed put to put on like a facade, but that's just me. But I mean, I don't know how she would react in that situation. Yeah, you think you know, but then, like, in a surprise situation like that, or something that's totally unexpected, then you don't know, even though you think you do. I'm always interested to hear what those body language experts say or think, because I'm just interested in that sort of thing. But I think it's kind of, I don't know, I don't want to spend too much time trying to dissect, like, every little movement she makes in the press conference, because, I mean, like I said, it seemed it was on the up and up to me when I watched it. I was like, okay, this seems like it could you know, be an appropriate reaction to your missing child. But one thing that uh, Chris's dad did say when they interviewed him for Crime Beat, he was saying that he was very suspicious right off the bat. One of the things um, was because he said Carissa would never just leave the car. Because, like, Penny's story was that they got into an argument and then Penny went into Sobeys to buy some grocery, like, a few things. Um, it was actually juice and bacon. That's <laughs> what they say in Crime Beat is what she bought. Um, but... So she went in. So basically, I think they just said that to say, like, she didn't go in and buy, like, an entire grocery order. It was, like, two things. But her story was that when she came out, like, Carissa stayed in the car. When she came out, Carissa was gone. But her, her dad said that that would be very unlike Carissa. She's not just going to walk off, especially when it's, like, near zero out and she is only in a hoodie and Crocs. Like, that's not like her. And he said he knows her enough that she would not do that. So he said right off the bat, that was kind of sketchy. But when they did pull the surveillance video, like I said, of the Sobeys on that day, Penny did go into the Sobies around the time that she says. Um, so that was all legit. But the police were obviously very suspicious of her, enough to kind of start this covert operation with Vernon and Penny. But I'm always, but I'm very curious because I said before, I couldn't find out why they were released from custody because they were arrested and charged on Febu- in February, but then they moved to Halifax in April. So obviously they were out of custody. So maybe they 
let them go because they didn't have anything concrete to hold them there. And then maybe they said, oh, we're going to do this like a covert thing to kind of get maybe a confession or get more information. So they let them go in the hopes that they could eventually get something to bring them back in would be my guess. Right? Well, could have they been out on bail? Oh, yeah, maybe. Can you get, I guess, yeah. But didn't say that, though. I mean, I obviously, but like their bail, if you're charged with like that kind of a crime, your bail is going to be very, very hefty. And they were not, you know, a well-off family. So I didn't suspect that they would have the means to. Yeah, I was, yeah. So I was just going to ask, why were they let go? Was there not enough evidence? Was there, it just seems odd that they were just left, let out of jail and walk free type thing. Like I said, I was reading the agreed statement of facts in the court case, but and it does mention that they moved. It says on April 1st, 2008, Penny Boudreaux and Vernon moved from their apartment in Bridgewater and relocated to an apartment in Halifax. So, but it doesn't say anything about why they were let go. But in any event, like I said, they were let go. And then this under, undercover investigation started because they had their enough suspicion to warrant this undercover sting operation. So like I said, on May 3rd, 2008, the undercover officers convinced McCumber that they needed a female for the work that they were doing, and they asked him to approach Penny with this. And like I said, they were building rapport over a long period of time, so he did trust them enough, and he believed their cover story was that they were a crime syndicate that was going to, um, they were trying to bring him into it, and also Penny. Um, so on June 11th of 2008, Penny met with an undercover officer who said that he could make her problem go away, but that she would need to tell him everything about what happened to Carissa so that he would know what work he needed to do in order to help her do this. And it was at this initial meeting uh, with him after he told her all of this that she admits to killing Carissa on January 27th. According to her story that she tells him, she says they left for a drive on that day around 3 or 4 p.m., Penny says she went into Sobeys uh, to buy those items. And then when she comes out, she goes to the, the trunk of her car to put the groceries in. And as she's doing this, she grabs a piece of beige twine. And then she, she like pulls it up into her hand, puts it into her pocket. And then she they proceed to drive to William Hebb Road, which was kind of a stretch of highway um, where the embankment was found. Her body was later found. Um, when they got to this road, she tells Carissa to get out. Um, and then Penny herself got out of the car. Then she says that she tackled Carissa to the ground. And Carissa's last words were, she said, Mommy, don't. And Penny says it was then when she wrapped the twine around her neck and strangled her. Um, and Penny even says that she used her knee to pin Carissa to the ground. Um, Penny says that she had been planning this this for weeks leading up to this. She says that it was... Uh, Vernon, who offered her an ultimatum. And he said that either Carissa goes or I go. And she says that she was so afraid of losing Vernon that she thought this was the only solution to that. It kind of goes back to what we said. Um, she was putting her relationship with Vernon, obviously, before her own child. And she was so afraid, according to her, she was so afraid of losing him that she thought this was the only way, um, the only solution for her. And she does say that she knew that there was snow in the forecast coming up. So she knew that by doing it on that night, that when she um, disposed of the body, that the snow would cover her and that she wouldn't be found for a while. That was what she said. So, um, and the agreed statement of facts that I read goes into like horrific amounts of detail about exactly like 
what technique she used to strangle her and like the struggle, but I'm going to kind of spare you all of those details unless you want me to go into that. But I assume you probably don't. No, no, that's good. (laughs) Okay. Once Carissa was dead, then she placed her on the floor, uh, the passenger side of her vehicle, drove a little bit back into Bridgewater and she then dumped, she dumped the body um, over the embankment um, on William Heb road and she placed the beige twine into an empty Tim Hortons cup and threw it into the trash. And then she went and she threw the clothes um, into the swimming pool trash can that were later found by that resident. Um, and it was then when she was disposing of the clothes um, that she realized that she only had one crock. Um, so she put the one crock into the garbage and didn't realize that she had left the other one literally at the crime scene. And the most astonishing thing was during this confession that Penny gave to this undercover police officer. Um, she actually gives a physical reenactment of the crime and she's basically going through the whole, all of the motions and showing him exactly how she killed her. And he says that she had very little emotion as she was describing this. It's horrific to hear um, as he's describing like how she was telling him that she did this with almost no emotion and it's terrible. But then after the, this, that was, this was on June 11th that she gave this confession to him. And then on June 14th of 2008, she was arrested and she was charged with first degree murder. And she, like I said, she did admit to him that she had been planning it for weeks in advance or at least days or days or weeks in advance, but she was planning it. So it was premeditated that led to the first degree murder charge. Um, she goes on to later explain that she said she would do anything for Vernon and she goes into more detail saying she was scared to lose him and um he says that he never gave her an quote-unquote ultimatum like she says he just said that he had told penny that her and carissa's constant arguing had to stop basically you know by either going to like he probably meant like going into counseling or maybe maybe having her go live with her father for a little bit or something obviously he never meant um, to go to the lengths that she did and he was eventually you know, he wasn't a suspect anymore and he was all of his char- the charges against him were dropped and it was, you know, they came to the agreement that it was all Penny's doing and she didn't really consult with Vernon at all. And it was actually going back to that altercation that they had in the apartment that the neighbors had overheard. That was when she had allegedly told him that she might've had something to do with Chris's disappearance. And that's when he was screaming at her saying he was going to leave her. Um, he was throwing things and saying, how could you do this? How could you do this? So, um, that seemed like it was all on the up and up with what he was saying. And so they felt confident clearing him of any charges. Um, so this, of course, devastated the community of Bridgewater. And the documentary goes into a little bit about just how shocked the community was. Because you don't really think of something like that happening to your in your town, but let alone like a small town that things like that don't really happen. And so there were people be waiting outside the courthouse, like people in the community who would like you know, heckle her as she would be escorted from the police car to the courthouse. And it was, you know, the video, they show video of that when she's like driving, the police is driving off um, with her in the car and they're shouting profanities and stuff at her. So obviously she was one of the most, or was the most hated woman in um, probably all of Nova Scotia at the time. Um, so during her initial arrest and when she's charged with first degree murder she doesn't really go into any details she doesn't give any admission but then when they do sit her down and they play her the audio tape of the confession that she gave to this undercover officer that's when she realized that 
you know, obviously it was going to be used against her. It wasn't going to look good at all. And she eventually ended up pleading guilty to a lesser charge of second degree murder as part of a plea bargain. Um, and like, uh, like I said, the undercover um, operation audio and video was the key evidence. And that was why she pled guilty. She knew there was no kind of def- no way she could make a defense um, that would be believable. So she thought by her defense thought by pleading guilty that she would get a lesser charge um, if it was second degree. But like I said earlier, she had admitted that she had been planning it for a while before she actually did it, which shows premeditation, which is kind of against the second degree murder charge. Um, it wasn't sort of a heat of the moment thing. So, but anyway, they, she pleaded guilty to second degree and she was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 20 years. During her incarceration, they got a little bit more information about Penny's childhood upbringing. She said that her mother had committed suicide when she was a young age. And so that really, you know, gave her a lot of issues as she was in an adolescent going into adulthood. Um, she was later diagnosed with depression, anxiety, and borderline personality disorder while she was in prison. Um, do you guys have any thoughts so far? Just crazy to think that like all her boyfriend was wanted was either for her to go back to her her father's house, or just to get some help, so they could just not fight all the time. But she took it so drastically that killing her with daughter was the only option for her to stay with her husband. It seems totally like bizarre to me. Like that's the first thing that comes to your mind when someone gives you an ultimatum like that like that doesn't make any like obviously there's other things going on in her mind for her to go straight to murder yeah and like i'm wondering what's so great about this guy that would make her choose him over her daughter and you know make her go to those lengths to get rid of her daughter so that she could stay with him like i mean i Bridge, I know Bridgewater is a small place and Halifax is a small city, but I guarantee you, you can find somebody else that's not going to give you that ultimatum. Like, yeah, there's other people out there for you. And, but other than that, like, I mean, I don't think it's too far-fetched to think that he did give her that ultimatum. He probably didn't think she'd go to this length. But I mean, I just I just can't imagine what goes through your head to, to be like, this is my best option is to get rid of my daughter completely rather than like, you know sending her to counseling or sending her to live with her father like maybe that doesn't feel good and you don't you don't look like a good mother if you do that but being a murderer is like the you know the worst thing so i just i don't i don't understand people what goes through their head like and he probably didn't spell it out he probably just said it's either her or me but he probably meant like you know like he didn't mean it like that but she took it literally he probably like, I don't think he explicitly said to her, like, you need to go into counseling or you need to have her go live with her father. Like, he didn't say those specific reasons, but he just said, like, it's her or me. And if you don't kind of sort this issue out with her, then I'm going to be gone. But she said that um, or they surmised that she had such severe abandonment issues because her mother committed suicide when she was young that these abandonment issues, you know, haunted her up into her adulthood. And when she was faced with the prospect of losing him, that she just couldn't bear the thought of being abandoned again and she had obviously had other failed relationships in the past with Chris's father and she just couldn't handle the stress of that so this is how she dealt with it which is very messed up and it's so sad and also like the fact that she goes into such gruesome detail about exactly like how Carissa struggled when she was strangling her and her final words of mummy don't um and she's like saying this to the undercover cop and she's also saying that as she was like dragging Carissa out of the car uh to put her over the embankment like 
she was like tugging on her clothes and that made like her pants were like fell down to her knees and then she left them like that because then she thought it would make everyone think that she was sexually assaulted which would like lead them down that trail and away from her i guess um and then obviously when they found the body they that was like kind of suspected right off the bat but then they did like after the autopsy they saw that that wasn't that wasn't what happened but the fact that she's like staging it and that's i don't know it's it's so horrific to hear her actually and they never released like the audio footage or the video footage of this um of the police thing like they played it in court but they never released it to the public because it was under the privacy act um that kind of thing never but according to people who were there in court listened to it it was so horrible to hear her describe all this well i think when they played it back in court she was breaking down during like when she listened to it in court but when she was actually giving the confession to the undercover cop she wasn't she was just saying it like so matter-of-factly like just spitting out like this is what happened this is how it happened and she wasn't you know a far cry from the you know emotional mess that she was in the press conference like she didn't really have any of that uh during this confession or uh, doesn't appear that she did anyway from what the interviews say and stuff so the fact that you could actually just so matter-of-factly be like this is what happened and this is exactly how i killed her and then i tried to stage it to make it seem like it was a sexual assault like it's just something a monster would do yeah it really is horrific and like first off if you have abandonment issues maybe don't kill members of your family um and it's not like and it's not like it was a like a jerk reaction like she lost it for a second like push her down the stairs or like i don't know it was like a struggle like this would have taken a lot of effort and she was super determined to kill her obviously like i feel like her daughter's fighting like she could have stopped and been like okay like what the hell am i thinking but she like physically fought with her like that's it's so disturbing to think of and like just picture that yeah like just yeah and like i said she pled guilty to second degree which is kind of second degree murder is like when it's not planned out and it's not premeditated but you know clearly she took her on a drive and then she went into Sobeys and then took the piece of twine and put it in her pocket after and like drove like purposely drove her out to the secluded area and then like told her to get out of the car and tackled her like that's very planned it's deliberately planned and it's just like I don't know I do wonder though like because when she was dumping the clothes into that um, garbage can at the swimming pool like that was when she realized that she only had the one one croc i wonder if if she didn't leave the other croc by mistake at the crime scene because that's what tied and they didn't release any of that to the public so it was only um her that would have known that but i wonder if she didn't leave that croc behind that they probably wouldn't have even placed it or pieced it together that the croc that they found in the garbage can was tied to that it was only because it was the same size and the same color but i don't know i just like not a good piece of evidence to leave behind and obviously she didn't know she did it yeah that, that is yeah that is weird to think of i don't know if that would if anybody would have noticed it or if anybody would have um connected the two two case the two things together if the croc wasn't left at the scene a mistake that she wished she didn't make but yeah she had multiple chances to like turn back like like you were saying like she had that that twine she put it in her pocket like she could have just not you know what I mean? She didn't have to commit from that moment. She could have turned. She could have turned back at any time, and I just can't. I just can't get over like the physical fight she would have had to do with this twelve-year-old daughter, super determined to kill her. Like it's just super. 
Yeah, it's like she's and like it's not doesn't matter what really age she is, but she's only twelve. Like that's so young. And like I said, the agreed statement of facts goes into all the details about like the struggle, but spared everyone from that. But I, an article I read from 2018. So she was like convicted and she was sentenced to life in jail back in 2009, um, and she was given life without parole for 20 years. So 2029 would be when her should be eligible for parole but in 2018 um she was granted day patrols so she has four day patrols that she's allowed to use and this was in july of 2018 so up until the end of the year she was allowed to leave for the day obviously as like escorted like she couldn't go out by herself but she was allowed and it was in order for her to go to church um she was allowed to attend church four times um up until the end of the year so that was controversial as well because obviously people were very upset about that especially the people in bridgewater why like i feel like canada's too nice it's like oh you've been in jail for so long like you know you deserve to be out now like i don't understand it and they said i don't know if it was in the in the hearing for this like day patrol thing but they said that she was considered a very low risk to reoffend. um but still like it's such a heinous crime and there's people in her family who say that they don't think that she has any remorse and everything was crocodile tears like from the press conference and everything that she displayed and they say that like listening to that confession she gave and how matter of fact it was that kind of just proves that she had no remorse and she just kind of wanted to live a simpler life without her 12 year old daughter and wanted to live happily ever after with Vernon Did um, Chris's father have any opinion on like her getting like day parole? Did he have any opinion? Like, did he have anything to say about that? Yeah. In the episode of Crime Beat, he was pretty upset. But he also said that he understands, like, rehabilitation. So he said that if she were to... If she could give him valid reasons why she believes that she's been rehabilitated and give her a valid reason why he thinks that she should be allowed to be given parole um, or day parole, that he would say, okay, like I would agree with that. But he said, I don't think it's ever going to happen because I don't think she actually feels any type of remorse or anything for it. So he said, if she were to like be able to, then maybe, but he feels pretty confident in saying that she doesn't have that ability or at least he doesn't think she does. Did Vernon stick around this whole time or did he kind of like get out of there pretty, pretty early on? Yeah, so once he was, like, cleared of the charges um, and everything, and he said, like, during the investigation that the reason he was, when they first brought that um, undercover cop into jail when he was there um, to build a relationship with him, he was saying, yeah, he was staying with Penny during all this because he was afraid that she was going to turn it on him and say he was complicit if he were to leave because obviously she had some emotional issues. But yes, once he was cleared and everything and she was put in jail, he left and never looked back but he said that obviously this just being associated with this case has ruined his life or a great portion of it because you know when you google his name and it's going to come up this case and even though he's been cleared of it and they don't think he had any part in it whatsoever but it's still like he is tied to it yeah he won't be able to escape that and that's like sad for him and he probably i don't know if he has like regrets about his actions or things he said to her to make her think that or warning signs that he didn't see. Uh, I don't know if he thinks about any of that, but I mean, yeah, it's, it's sad for him that it's going to be with him forever too. 
Yeah, and even the cop that they interview in Crime Beat, he was kind of the main cop that they interviewed, and he said that he has PTSD from this case because it just stayed with him and he never really got over it. It's a really interesting interview, and it's on the Crime Beat, the is the name of the show that this episode was on. So it's really worth watching, I think. But um, yeah, it's pretty pretty awful, and I still can't believe that like. She was just given the plea bargain of if you plead guilty to second degree, then you'll get life without parole for 20 years instead of life without parole. Um, so because she pled guilty to second degree, which didn't fit with any of the evidence, considering that she planned it, it's just crazy to think that you can just change what you plead regardless of what you said and we're going to get a lighter sentence. And and now it's like 20 years. That's 2029, which, <clears throat> which is still like eight years away. But it's really not that long considering like she could be out in eight years. And if they no. can, and if they think she's a very low risk to reoffend, then she probably will get patrol, parole. She probably will get out, and I and I feel like they don't have to give her a plea deal. Like if she uh, like confessed to planning it out, why would they offer that? Just so she wouldn't go to wouldn't have a trial. Well, I think pro- it was her probably her lawyer that said you need to plead guilty to second degree, but to avoid a trial because if it went to trial, she probably would have just been convicted of first degree. But, but if she I mean, pled, every, everybody that it, that has first degree murder charges against them can't just be like, oh, I'm just going to plead guilty to second degree just because I can. That's not always on the table, right? But so, I, I guess mean, I don't think don't so. But to, maybe and like yeah, like, and like the prosecution doesn't have to agree to that either. I just find it interesting that they had a full confession where she said she planned it out and they didn't go with it. Yeah, I guess what did they do? They wanted to spare everyone the trial. I don't know why though. If they have that evidence, they could just do the trial. Pretty clear cut, like. Then they could send her away and she wouldn't get any patrol. Parole. Keep saying patrol. Um, but then she wouldn't get any parole. So I don't know. It's weird that they just kind of gave in. And I don't know like the legal. I'm not a lawyer or anything. So I don't know the complex legal stuff. But it just seems, yeah, kind of weird that they're just like, oh, yeah, we're going to like forego this trial and just give you a lighter sentence. Because even though like it's it would be very easy to just give her the full life sentence. I guess because there's still be a chance that she could get off with nothing if they did go to trial so i guess it's just like she's gonna go to jail for 20 years if she pleads guilty to this anyway so i guess that's good enough easier i guess but but i mean they had to feel very fairly confident that they would be able to convict her with a jury if they had that confession tape and they played it in trial like that was the whole reason because she said that she wasn't being upfront she wasn't giving any um she wasn't like giving a full confession when they arrested her it was only when they played back the footage to her that she realized like oh shit like can't really refute this so i'm pretty sure a jury would have thought the same thing right and when she they played a factor she agreed with everything right she didn't try and fight it she didn't say oh she just made it up like she went along with it so i don't know it's super weird and that's a clear cut confession as you can get and they still didn't yeah that was like that's like the dream that like most like prosecutions would like die to have like that clear cut confession it's just, like, just weird. It's just weird how the legal system works, and like there's these loopholes that like just allow people to. And she did like a horrible crime. She killed her 12 year old daughter. Like, I don't know. I'm just curious to know why, like, how they can tell that somebody is like at low risk to reoffend or somebody is a high risk to reoffend. Like, what process they go through to make that decision? Like, she could get out of jail in nine years and go murder somebody else. How do they know? Like, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure they have like professionals who weigh out all the criteria and determine whether someone's high risk or low risk. But she probably had no prior criminal record, and they probably assumed that 
this killing of Carissa was directly linked to her fear of abandonment with, I don't know, maybe the, she wouldn't be allowed to have kids. I don't know. Can you? Can yeah, but you when, she gets out of, when she gets out of jail, nobody's going to want to be around her, so she's going to be abandoned anyways. Like, <laughs> she's not going to, do you know what I mean, though? Like, she's not going to just pick up where she left off when she well, gets she out of Well, she might, like, move away, like, because, like as I said, this case... Probably outside yeah. of Nova Scotia, it's not super well known. So she could move across the country or to another country. That's true. And no one would even know who she is. Change her name, change her appearance. I guess. Probably easy yeah. to do. All right. So pretty crazy case. But yeah, I just wanted this one from Nova Scotia. So it's, I don't know, it just feels so much different when it's Nova Scotia, when you like live there and you realize how small it is. And then this, this case that was so well known, just it hits different. Yeah, it has like a weird eerie feeling when you know how close to home it was and like we lived there at that time. So yeah, it's it's weird. So um, that does it for this episode of Crime Family. We thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear, you can follow us on Instagram at Crime Family Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crime Family Pod One. Um, you can make sure to leave us a review and a rating on your favorite podcast streaming app. You can also subscribe to us there so that you get notified as soon as we release a new episode. Uh, the music that you're hearing throughout is done by the awesome Tim Monis. You can follow him on Instagram at T-I-M-M-O-N-I-S. Just spell it out for you. Um, also, we do have a Facebook page now, so you can find us at Crime Family Podcast on Facebook. And also, we do have a email, so we're at crimefamilypodcast at gmail.com. You can send us your feedback or even a case suggestion if you have one, and um, we'll be very interested to read it. and possibly do the case that you want us to cover so um yeah thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time take care